Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30, and, of course, it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy, and, of course, first up is Mr Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there listening in bed, probably. <laughs> God, it was dark this morning. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, the days are definitely shortening. It shortened. has changed. Yes, it has changed. Over the last few weeks, from being sort of lightish to now completely darkish and uh, yes I do feel like I'm getting up in the middle of the night. I do have to have the torch to get up to the car now. Yeah yes oh yes well yes I I have this series of lights so I have to turn on the hall light as I come downstairs so I don't fall over and break my neck and then I can switch it off from downstairs and then I have to turn the lounge room light on to get through to the front door and then I have to put the front veranda light on to get down and yes it's quite a quite uh, an effort really just to get here Uh, or even to get to the car in fact. it is. But uh, yeah, so the days are shortening, but it's still awfully dry. Oh, it's shocking now. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, I've had enough. I've had more than enough. <laughs> yeah. I am uh, just... Can we all do a rain dance or something? <laughs> oh, yeah, but doesn't that require nakedness or something? And that's probably not a good look. Uh, yeah. and, you know, I mean, well, I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe we could do it quietly uh, after dark so nobody can see us. Well, I remember Nick used to bring in a branch of something, didn't he? Oh, and he'd yes. do a chant underneath it while he sat here. Yes. Yes. I don't know whether it ever I need worked. to look up. I need to look up the requirements for a rain dance. Yeah, but we certainly need one. I mean, I've been out there watering my bloody lawn, uh, trying to keep it because green for this. Because of your soiree. Up, uh, yes, because of the upcoming soiree. I don't want them to be in a dust bowl. I'd rather like them to be on green stuff. So I oversowed it a couple of weeks ago, and I've got green coming up through the bare patches, which is quite nice. And yes, every second day I'm out there with the. Actually, I love my impact sprinkler. How many people have lost the sound of an impact sprinkler in their life. I've got one that covers the whole circle of the lawn right. that I can plonk in the middle yep. uh, and turn it on and that noise is... Oh, it takes me back. I just love that noise. And for years, we couldn't use sprinklers at all. Yep. Um, and to have dusted mine off out of the shed and blown the lizards out of the bottom of it and <laughs> all those things and got it going again um, is quite exciting, actually. And, and I feel profligate. I mean, watering a lawn does seem an awful waste. But nonetheless, I'm determined to have an ice cream lawn for this upcoming event in April. And I will, by the looks of things, Good. as long as I keep it up. Excellent. And I've got Sternbergias popping up in it at the moment because they've decided to come up into flower because I've been watering the lawn. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've got all these yellow Sternbergias coming up around the Nashi pear, which are, is quite nice. Wonderful. Actually, I do love those autumn bulbs. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm. Anyhow. We have to say a very good morning to Simon Rickard. Morning, Simon. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, listeners. And I bet it was dark when you were up picking apples. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yes, it was dark. I've noticed the same thing as Steve, and the day's getting shorter. But exactly as you said, this is the time when all those wonderful amaryllid bulbs come up. Yeah. Mm. lilies and the culturegums mm. and, you know, yes, the and, greens and yeah. yeah, It's like a second spring in a way, isn't yeah. it? All, yeah. the yeah. all the little cyclamen are, are coming up. I've got... Graecum and hedrofolium in drifts all yeah. over the place at the moment, looking fabulous. So it is. It's actually quite an exciting time of the year. I love it. Yeah, yep. it is. And Excellent. like Steve and I've been watering my lawn too, and feeling really terrible about it. But <laughs> similarly, I, I've got an open day coming up too, and I don't want my visitors to be on a on a dust bowl. Mm. So uh, you know, there. It's, it's. What do you do? What do you do? Yeah, exactly. Yep. I mean, there's no other su- surface like lawn, really. Mm. So I'm thinking of it. Well, you know, the lawn sequesters carbon. So I'm thinking of it. <laughs> I'm putting carbon back into the soil. Uh, dear, there's I can always justify a, anything. Yeah, you, of course you can justify anything if you have to. But there is nothing nicer than a nice green lawn no. when you've got visitors. Of course, your background's in lawn, isn't it? <laughs> well, you might say that. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I'd normally just let it go, but 
this year, you've got to do something about yeah. it. You know? So, yeah. yes, when you've got groups coming and visitors yeah. coming, it is nice mm. uh, to have a green patch. Mm. Whereas I'm in the situation, I think I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I had all my big old stumps scrubbed out. Oh, yes. And... And there is no way I can water an acre. I don't even have hoses that reach down to what was just just local mm. native bushgrass, you know. And it's just a complete dust bowl. You should see my dog. <laughs> just, oh, Probably enjoying itself. Oh, he's loving it. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's like, you know, poultry. You know how they love a dust, dust bath? bath. Yeah. Well, I think my dog's decided that, you know, his second life should be as a chicken. And yeah, <laughs> well, that's a dog's job. To get grotty, I believe. Well, yes, <laughs> yes, yes yeah, they yes. take great delight. They like rolling in stuff. Yeah, and of course he's just finished doing all of that, and then he's got a great big water bowl. And what does he do? He comes in, his his feet are hot, so he plonks both feet in, and they instantly turn to mud. So yeah. it's it's good fun at the and moment. Then tap dances on the carpet. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> if I let him in. Ah <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, well, never mind. I just we need that rain. They say there's a slight chance of rain on Tuesday. Yeah, well. I'll but believe I mean, it when it comes. Too <laughs> yeah. The other thing about it is it's so consistently hot for this time of year too. Yes, you know, normally we'd be expecting the temperatures to slope off a little bit. But yeah. And the funny thing is that it's actually hotter up our way, up, up mm. on the north of the range than it is down here in Melbourne yeah. at the That's moment. That's right. Yeah, well, at least in Melbourne, they get, I guess they get the afternoon sea breezes and mm. things that blow in a bit, which can temper the temperature a little bit. Yeah. But yes, once you get on to the north of the... Well, even up where we are at Massive, yeah. no, I mean, we're far enough from the coast that it can be dropping off in Melbourne, but it it's still stinking yeah, exactly. hot up there. Yeah. And, yeah, we've been getting some really hot ones. It's but, the new normal, um, Stephen. Well, it may well be the new normal, Simon, uh, and I don't have to like it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you've got to live with it. Well, you do have to live with it. Uh, but I have to say one thing that is quite good. I don't mind warmer weather at this end of the year. It's when you get it in October. Mm. Because that's when things are fresh and green and soft and sappy and you get a 40-degree day in October or early November and it can just sort of check everything in the garden. You'll get burnt foliage that you've got to live with for the rest of the year. But now, at this time of the year, with minimum water uh, to stop things from actually wilting... um, they seem to be able to cope with it quite well by this time. Mm. So it's actually not so bad mm. um, as long as you can just keep up with that little bit of watering and what have you. So most evenings I'm out there with the hose swatting mozzies and things and, you know, trying to keep things... Oh, they're uh, in abundance. They're, they're vicious this year. Yeah, yeah, and I just keep thinking of all these nasty uh, diseases that can be spread by mosquitoes and hoping none <laughs> of them find their way down Funnily here. enough, I got a tick in my garden the other day. Whoa. I found a tick wandering around on my leg, which is really unusual up in the subalpine zone where I live. There's mm. only one species of, of tick that, that lives in this part of Victoria and I've never seen it before. And you found it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he found you. Well, I, I hope you said nice little tick and, and you know, released it back into the wild because they're probably <laughs> <Nah>. quite rare. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Not right. quite. Not quite. All right. Uh, dear. Okay, we should get on to a few announcements. Stephen, you've got a few there, so I'll All let right. you get on to those first. Uh, well, the Kyneton Horticultural Society, Inc. is having its autumn flower show at the Watts Pavilion at the show grounds in Mollison Street, Kyneton, on Saturday, March the 5th, and Sunday, March the 6th. Now, 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 March the 5th was yesterday. Oh, all so right, it's so it's today. only today. It's so, today. Thank you, Pam. I wasn't paying attention. Uh, I'm just reading. Um, 
So, today is the last day to go and see the Kite and Flower Show, so you better get uh, on your bike or in your car or whatever you're going to do. Uh, admission is $4, and it's open today from 10 a.m. to 4.30, and it's one of those fabulous old-fashioned flower shows, you know, where people enter their best gladi or their best day or, you know, their bunch of and carrots. come along I, in their sports yeah, coat and, yeah, you know, and, uh, yeah, something and, in the lapel. And yes, and, and, they, and they see the little sash they've won, yes. you know, champion <laughs> fruit in show, uh, and I love it. I think, you know, that whole sort of uh, country fair sort of thing. I reckon this might have won a prize. Yeah, well, yes, that, that, that <laughs> Apple could have done, actually, except you probably needed to have three identical ones. Yeah, and they you probably know, have to be you, uniform size and yeah, shape. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So there's all these rules and regulations which... Um, which are sort of fun to follow, really. I mean, it's all part of the, the game. Um, and entering flower shows can be taken on a very serious level, as oh, some yes. people do, particularly dahlia growers, I find. They're very thing about their dahlias, and they have their dahlia rings to make sure the flowers are just the right size. If you don't, if it doesn't fit within the ring, it's out of schedule, so you'll get knocked off. Oh. Uh, and, you know, they have all these different sections from pom-pom to giant decorative, and uh, and it's, it's sort of really exciting. And you know, they're, they're nearly all old gentlemen. I don't know about why with dahlias, but it seems to be the way it is. Uh, and if you go to their gardens, they have uh, rectangular beds with tomato stakes with labels tacked on the top of each tomato stake with the name of the dahlia that's there. And there's absolutely no colour sense, no coordination, no nothing. It's a plonked bed of dahlias. And I remember as a kid going to see an old guy up in Echuca called Ed Brown. Um, or was it Ted Brown? No, I think it was Ed Brown. Um, and he was a fanatical grower and, and shower. He used to show it at, at Rochester and Echuca and all over the place. Um, and he had literally hundreds of different varieties of dahlias. He virtually had a paddock full of them. Um, and it was really impressive to see... Although, having said that, it's not my style of gardening. Um, but he was just absolutely a fanatic. I don't know what he did the rest of the year when it wasn't show time, you know. <laughs> I mean, he could work up to it with his disbudding and staking and putting an umbrella over the top and things. Uh, but, um, you know, it was his passion. And, you know, he'd come home with a swag of prizes from every show and um, all that sort of stuff. So I'm assuming he's in the Dahlia Patch in the sky now because he was probably an 80-year-old when I was a 20-year-old. Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, it's that sort of passion that yes. gets people in. Yes. But then at the other end, there's the, I don't know, enter and giggle group uh, who just do it for the fun of it. And, you know, you, you throw some entry in at the last minute and what have you. Uh, and then you walk in and you find you still want a prize anyway half the time. And it's the amount of pleasure you get from it is completely out of kilter with what you actually get. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, when you do walk in and you see that you've won a first, second, or even a highly commended, um, it's sort of exciting. Yeah. So flower shows are great. So if you've got the time, shoot up to Kyneton today um, and have a look at the Kyneton Flower Show in the Watts Pavilion at the showgrounds. So that should be fun. Excellent. Um, now, the other main one I've got here is is a little further in, into the future, but it is something you have to book for. And I have mentioned it before. It's our opera in the garden at our place to at Macedon. We've got the Gertrude Opera coming, uh, which is a wonderful organisation that helps young opera singers move into a career by giving them sort of uh, performances in public and, and, and you know, sort of honing their talents and things. And they're not just Australian kids, there's 
people from all over the place. I think last year we had a, a lass from Romania or Hungary or somewhere. Um, we had an American girl who was also singing. So uh, there's mainly Australian opera singers, but, you know, from all over the place. Uh, so it's a fun afternoon. It's 2 for 2.30 on the 10th of April, but you will need to book. And if you want to come, you'll have to book through the Gertrude Opera site. So go into Gertrude Opera. It has an events bit, and you just follow the links through, and it should take you through to booking and, and all that sort of stuff. There will be wine. There will be canopies. Um, I'm thinking of doing the asparagus rolls again this year. They were very popular last. Um, and... Um, It'll be great fun. So um, I think we get, normally have about half a dozen young opera singers and they all sing an aria, then we have a break and you can have a wander in the garden and have a look at Craig's art and all that sort of stuff and, and then they will come back and do a different aria uh, in the afternoon. So even if you're not a mad opera buff, this is quite a nice way to put your toe in the water with opera because you're not having to sit through well, the ring cycle, yeah. for instance, <laughs> sake, um, uh, you know, a day's full of opera. Um, but um, you're just getting a little sprinkling of interesting bits and pieces from different operas and mm. operettas and things, and it's it's good fun. Stephen, I've heard tell that you have a very nice opera cape which you've been known to wear to the opera. Oh, yeah, yes. I don't know that I'll be wearing it for this afternoon event because it's a little overdressy, I would have said. <laughs> uh, but yes, you're right, Simon. I wear an opera cape to the opera because we normally book for the opening night, and I figure if you're going to go to an opening night, you should look the part. Yeah, make yes. an effort. I get quite annoyed with these people who show up and they're grotty old jeans and t-shirts and and things at the opera i mean yes they can be relaxed and yes it's a very aussie thing to do um but you know where do you get a chance to wear your opera cape but to the opera true you know so if i'm going to wear it i can't think of many other places i can use it (laughs) um and it's fun as long as you don't get too swishy Mm. (laughs) (laughs) you know it's very easy to get swishy when you're wearing a cape i've discovered Yeah, so there you go. So I think that's my bit. Okay, All right. excellent. Yep, now Simon, before we forget, we've oh, yes. got an open garden coming up. In I fact, do. next weekend. Yes, next weekend, the, uh, the Labor Day long weekend. My garden will be open on the Sunday and the Monday only. Uh, Not so the Saturday. That's correct. So only the 13th and 14th um, from 10 till 4 on both days. Um, it's in Trentham, and if uh, listeners want to find out more details, they can go to the Diggers Club website, and uh, all the details are there on the Diggers web- website. So uh, it, it, entry is free for Diggers Club members, and for non-members it costs $10 um, to get in to see my garden. It's the first time I've actually opened it, and uh, Clive Blasey had to twist my arm pretty hard. I know, you've you. tried to avoid it in the past. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you feeling now that it's a fait accompli? <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I'm shaking my head and wondering why. I ever agreed to it. <laughs> it's an awful lot of work and of course but look the thing I found I don't know about you Stephen but the thing I found out when I was the head gardener at Diggers is, is when visitors come to your garden you know you only see weeds you see gaps you see mm. things that haven't flowered they don't time. see any of that no they judge you on what you have done well rather yes. than what you've done badly yes. and people enjoy it anyway which is which is not of course they do I mean yeah. people just think it's an absolute privilege to be in somebody else's space yeah. uh, and if they're keen gardeners uh, they'll notice the work you've done and they'll appreciate that if they're not keen gardeners and they're just there to have a little look they won't notice anyway yeah. so <laughs> you know so it, it's generally a win-win yeah. uh, and I find with garden openings too you get all sorts of lovely people who come along and and, and you can actually feed off them a bit mm. you know they'll say things and you'll think oh thought of that or yeah. you know I hadn't realised that was looking as Not good as it is or yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. sorts of stuff so you get back mm. uh, when you open your garden and you will realise after the opening too that there's this 
relaxed sort of week to ten days afterwards where you don't do anything because the garden it's is so done. thick and span. <laughs> yes. caught up. And, and you can just sort of relax into it and go, ah. And, and <laughs> so, right, yeah, it, oh, it is. It's the best part of garden opening is that week afterwards when mm-hmm. you when it's all yours mm-hmm. uh, and you've done all that hard work to bring it up to an absolute peak because you feel the need because uh, you do want to show yourself off as best you can. Uh, oh, now I'm making him feel <laughs> really bad. Um, and, you know, the week after is fantastic. Yeah, I just love it. Yeah. So, On the downside, I will be watching out for hands darting into handbags. And, uh, uh, you know, I have got quite a few plants. Plants, which it's taken a big investment of time for me to, to find and to yes. grow from seed and so yeah. forth. And, and, and I have heard stories, and I, in fact, mm. I've experienced also people stealing things from gardens. So oh. anybody caught stealing from the garden will be fed to the ducks. Mm. Good. Sounds reasonable. Yes. yes. Pecked to death by ducks. What a, good <laughs> Absolutely. what a way to go. And yeah. the body in the compost. It's a perfect crime. Yes. Oh. <laughs> uh, I have to say, though, most of them are good. You only get the odd rogue person. And it's nearly always some passionate collector who just can't wait to buy one, so they want yours. (laughs) That's what happened to my Cypripedium in the nursery not long ago. Oh, wow, they picked the rarest, most expensive plant. Yeah, (laughs) I'd only had it about a fortnight. I'd just potted it up. I'd bought it at the GPCA auction. I'd knocked it down to myself for 50 bucks, which I thought was a good buy anyway. But nonetheless, it was still $50 spent. uh, And within a fortnight night it was gone wow and all it was was a label and a leaf mm. in a pot oh, and somebody came along pulled it out of the pot and took the label they really knew what they were looking for oh they knew they, they yes. knew what it was they absolutely knew what they it was they don't look that different from well know, look unless interest. yeah <laughs> unless you really knew what it was yeah. you wouldn't even look twice at it i mean if it had been in flower i could sort of almost understand mm. somebody just vaguely interested because it's got a pretty flower but in in a half dead leaf no mm. And so somebody nicked it, and there were only three customers that day, and I think I know who you are. Um, so Won't be tired if they yeah. walk in the nursery again. Well, you can't say anything, but uh, yeah. if they know that I think that, that I'm aware of who it was, well, it wouldn't be anything wrong with that. It might stop them doing it again. Well, you would hope. Yeah, and, and one listen- can only hope the Cypripedium dies. I know that's unfair to the Cypripedium. <laughs> But it's not fair that that person's got it and I haven't. <laughs> That's right. For listeners who don't know what a cypripedium is, it's a cold climate slipper orchid. Yeah, so it's beautiful. like the papiopetalums that you see in, in lots of orchid shows, but fabulously, fabulously rare and extremely difficult to grow, and you really need a cold climate to be able to grow it. Mm. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, so I hope it comes from St Kilda yeah. or something, yeah. <laughs> and it won't Darling. live down there. It would serve them right. Uh, but anyhow, look, enough of... Okay. Bitterness. Yes, yes. <laughs> we can't stay bitter and twisted. No, of course you can't. No. All right, have we got any more announcements? Yes, we do have, and I do need to get to some of them. Okay, today uh, we've been talking open gardens. Uh, the next uh, open garden for Open Gardens Victoria is uh, Arundel, which is open today. Now, Arundel is um, it's open from 10 through to 4.30 today. Um, it's down at East Geelong. 478 Ryrie Street in East Geelong. Uh, cost is $8. Children under 18 are free. There's uh, tea, coffee and cake and plant sales there. And this is a romantic garden. It's a hidden treasure just two kilometres from the Geelong city centre. And uh, it's as well as having uh, some beautiful um, mature trees, a golden elm, Dappled shade, but it also uh, incorporates some some very uh, hardy perennials, uh, grasses. It's got vegetable beds in unexpected combinations, fruit trees, beekeeping, 
Worm farming and composting are all features, so it's a fully working garden. Um, and funds raised are going to Friends of Geelong Botanic Gardens and to Headspace. So that's today. Also today, uh, Villa Alba, first Sunday in the month, is of course open, 44 Walmer Street in Kew. Melway's reference there is 44H6. Now the Historic House and the RJ Hamer Heritage Garden are open. Opening from 1 o'clock through to 4 o'clock, admission is $10, concession $8, children are free. Afternoon tea is available with a $3 donation, but also they've asked me to let you know that coming up, um, there's going to be a concert of harp music at Villa Alba during the Q Festival. Now, this will be Water, a concert of harp music at Villa Alba Museum. Uh, the resident harpist, Michael Johnson, who's resident and, uh, uh, at Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, will be uh, performing. Uh, now, this comes up on 19th of March, on, that's a Saturday, 7 till 9 p.m. Tickets are $20, uh, but they can only seat 72, so you do need to get onto that and make a booking if you'd like to go to that uh, harp concert. Now, uh, you can either phone Sue, and her number is 9882-6292, uh, that's 9882-6292, or you can email inquiries at villaalbamuseum.org. That's inquiries at villaalbamuseum.org. And that would be a rather lovely place mm. to hold a harp concert, I uh, would imagine. It would be. Very nice indeed. Yes, definitely. Yes, pulling at my strings. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Uh, right. Uh, also opening today, but running right through until the 14th of March, is the textile exhibition I've been mentioning that's uh, taking place down at Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. Now, this is the fifth anniversary ex- exhibition of fabrics, crafts and quilting. Now, entry is free. Uh, it's being held in the Australian Garden Visitor Centre, as I said, starting from today, running through until the Labor Day holiday on Monday, March the 14th, 10 till 4 each day. The exhibit uh, fills the gallery area at the reception desk and also in the auditorium downstairs. Uh, There are over 200 exhibits of patchwork, quilts and other items by some of Australia's leading quilting uh, and textile experts. And um, there will also be um, a, uh, a quilt, again donated by Lisa Chandler, who's a leading fabric designer, and uh, tickets uh, will be raffled off by the Cranburn Friends to assist with ongoing development of the gardens down there. Tickets at $2 each, and you can get those at the exhibition. So that's all happening uh, today, as I say, running through until the 14th. Now, a couple more I do need to mention because they're coming up uh, very shortly. Next Saturday, 12th of March, um, is the Sunshine Golden Age Garden Club uh, annual show. This is their 95th annual show, so they're doing well. Now, it's open 11... I bet they haven't got any of their original exhibitors there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, unless they started as a child. Yeah, well, even then they'd be pushing it. (laughs) Yes. Um, 11 o'clock through till 4 o'clock. It's being held at the Glengala... Uh, Community Hall, that's on the corner of Simi Street and Glengala Road in Sunshine. Melway's map 
reference there is 40E2. Lots and lots of uh, different floral displays as well as photography and displays by local schools. And uh, admission is free. Afternoon tea is available for a gold coin donation. Next Sunday, Reedsdale Bush Market is on again. Uh, now, this happens at the Agnes Mudford Reserve uh, in Kyneton. It's, uh, oh, it's Kyneton Heathcote Road. I'm sorry, Kyneton Heathcote Road in Reedsdale, of course. Um, and uh, it's being held by the Reedsdale Hall Committee. Uh, now, this, of course, next Sunday is part of the Labor Day long weekend, and uh, there'll be all sorts of uh, entertainment. Bendigo and District Concert Band will be there. There'll be children's entertainment, including face painting, an animal farm, jumping castle. Several members of the Kyneton Vehicle Appreciation Society will be displaying their vehicles. And uh, the list goes on and on. Unlimited, uh, well, limited, not quite unlimited, but food and plant stall sites uh, will all be there. And, of course, local produce, including wine tasting, pre-loved clothing, Lots and lots there for you just just to uh, go and explore. So uh, that's up at the uh, Agnes Mudford Reserve in the hall there, uh, which is at 2631 Kyneton Heathcote Road in Reedsdale. Just love the name, Agnes Mudford. Isn't that fantastic? She must have been a local identity. Yeah. Yes. But what a, what a name. Yes. <laughs> You'd love to know more about it, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um Another one I should mention, because again, that's happening uh, next uh, Sunday, and then we will get to our uh, listeners, but also next Sunday is the next Discovery Walk down at Geelong uh, Botanic Gardens, and this is called Capturing Stormwater. Uh, so the, uh, the details are that it's next Sunday at 2 o'clock. You meet your guide at the front steps of Geelong Botanic Garden, uh, cost is a gold coin donation and the idea is, dear, is that you will see features in the gardens hidden in plain sight that uh, help conserve water, see how storm water is collected and treated and you'll also be intro- uh, introduced to the new indigenous planting surrounding the stormwater dam. So that's also next Sunday. All right, we must open up our talkback lines for listeners. Um, we've got uh, both Stephen Ryan and Simon Rickard in the studio this morning. We'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air. Or this morning we have Anne on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Anne, 94198377. Stephen, before we get any phone calls, we were sent um, a photo. Oh, yes. Um, yes, a lady sent us a photo. Her name I've forgotten already, um, <laughs> but you've got all that information in I front do of you have. there somewhere. Yes. And it was a picture of the well-known herbaceous perennial, commonly known as Bleeding Heart. Um, and in most books, you'll still find it under its uh, its original name, which is Dicentra spectabilis, uh, but it is now Lapnocapnos spectabilis. Uh, the whole Bleeding Heart group have been chopped about and cut up, and, and, and now there's a whole series of these weird and very inappropriately named plants, as far as I'm concerned, because they're nearly all hard names. Names to pronounce, and yes. uh, and when you do send that photo back to her, I'm not sure I got the spelling of Lapnocapnos quite right, but anyhow, but it it'll be give close. her enough. Yeah, to, it'll to get, look give it her up. enough to go on. Yeah. Now it's a it's a, a Chinese perennial, uh, grows to around about a meter. Um, it likes a good 
veggie garden type soil, a nice nutrient rich, uh, friable, not too dry soil in a sheltered aspect, particularly from the wind because it's very brittle and it will snap and fall over if you've got it in the wind. Um, and you need to be very careful when it's dormant in the winter that you don't stick a fork through it because uh, it really hates having its roots broken up. Uh, but apart from that, it's not actually too hard to grow. Uh, so a sheltered site... Plenty of light, but not the really stinking hot afternoon sun, uh, and good veggie garden type soil should be ideal for it. Um, and it's just the most, one of the world's really elegant. Uh, herbaceous perennials. I think. Oh, it's beautiful. It is, and it also comes in a pure white version. And there's a rather odd gold-leafed, pink-flowered version as well, which I've seen around occasionally. Not sure about gold and pink as a combination, but it certainly stands out. So, so there you go. So there are different forms of it that show up occasionally. Um, and a lovely, lovely plant. Yep. So there you go. So what most people would know is Dicentra spectabilis. And that was Elaine from Burwood. Elaine. There yep. you go, Elaine. I hope that gives you all you need to be going on with with that particular plant. And I will, I will send that photo back to you, Elaine. So and I've right. written the names on the back for you. So yes. there you go. So there you go. Exactly. As I said, that uh, number, if you'd like to join us this morning, 94190155 to speak to the team on air or to have a chat to Anne on the outside line, 94198377. Simon, you've brought in something that I don't automatically think of normally at this time of the year. We've, we've, we've sort of alluded to your apples, but normally you think of them as very much an autumn harvest. Well, it's kind of very much autumn in a way. Well, well it is officially, yeah. but weather-wise, it's yeah, not. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's true, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't know if anyone's read Tim Whistle's book, Sprinter and Sprummer, about where he readdresses the the seasons in summer. You might have to readdress them again, the way our climate's going. <laughs> 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 yes. yes. <laughs> but it, it's it's really very very good, and it makes you realise that the, the the European four season model that's been draped over the top of Australian culture is really rampantly inappropriate. But anyway, the, the apples do. Um, uh, ripen at this time of year. In fact, they start around about Christmas time with the very early varieties, um, like Gravenstein, which is uh, one uh, listeners might know. And then the latest apples um, are still hanging on the trees in July. So um, if you plan your varieties correctly, you can have six months' worth of apples um, starting from Christmas and going right through to the middle of winter. But I brought in three uh, of the... I, I grow five varieties of apples, and I brought in three that I grow today. Um, uh, the, the first one is, is enormous. It's, um, oh, it's gigantic. You wouldn't put that in a kid's lunchbox, poor no, child. No, no. <laughs> Definitely not for kids' lunchboxes. But uh, it's a, an English variety um, uh, called striped beefing. From, uh, it comes from Norfolk from the 19th century, and it's a cooking apple. So um, the, the word beefing, we think, is a corruption of the French word bouffin, beautiful ending. Um, and so this is a dessert apple that you, um, you core out and you stuff it with walnuts and raisins and oh, brown right. sugar and butter and all that good stuff. They used to bake them in and sell them at roadside stalls. And they've got quite a thick skin that, that sort of collapses around the, the flesh when you bake it. So it's got its own packaging as well. Yes. Um, and so these were sold at, at, at stalls, you know, on the, on the road. Well, that explains why they grow so big. I mean, perfect yep. for stuffing and baking. Yep. And they can, they can grow up to uh, about 600 grams, so a little bit more wow. than half a kilo. Wow. So this one's a relatively small specimen. That Goodness me. Goodness. <laughs> and there are several very large apples like this. <laughs> There's another one that's got a fabulous name, um, Peas Goods Nunsuch. And, wow. Um, <laughs> 
Peas goods, none such as look like uh, sort of like small pumpkins. I mean, they're really enormous. Um, but they're, they're green with a red flush on this. You know, they're not much to look at on the outside. Yeah. Um, but fantastic cooking apples. And another cooking apple people might know is Bramley seedling, mm. which is another English 19th century variety. Um, and it's the, the favourite cooking apple of the British. Um, it's got a beautiful lemony tang if you eat them fresh, actually. They're perfectly nice eaten fresh with a, a proper citrus lemon flavour. And um, when you cook them, they cook to a very richly flavoured uh, fluff. So um, depending on what, how you like to cook your apples, you need to select the right variety because something like the Bramley seedling will cook to a fluff, yep. whereas a continental cooking apple like, um, uh, like Belle de Boskop, which is a Dutch variety, stays whole when you cook it. So that's perfect for making apple tart or apple pie, uh, where you don't want it, you don't want to yeah, yeah. yeah. doesn't want to go to nothing. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> But then if you want to make baby food, then obviously you, you want something that cooks to a fluff. Yep. So um, and there are varieties that are good for baking and other ones that are good for, um, uh, you know, boiling and, and doing that, those sorts of cooking methods with. Other ones are, that are... Uh, there's, there's something for every possible end use in the kitchen, which is a nice thing about all these heritage varieties of apples. Mm. There, are, there are still about 3,000 varieties of apple getting around, um, uh, but... Commercially, there's only 10 varieties that dominate horticulture, and these are the ones we, we see in our supermarkets. Because supermarkets really want, they want a red apple, a green apple, of a course. yellow apple, yeah. a pink apple, and um, they, they want them to look perfect on the outside. Uh, and whether or not they taste like anything is neither here nor there. So, they don't care about taste. No, exactly. And that results in things like the inappropriately named red delicious apple. I, I, Which is not delicious. It's foul. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's all right fresh off the tree. It's really nice, but it doesn't have very good... Uh, like the longer it's stored, it, it gets fluffy, it gets flavourless, it gets dry, yeah. and it's got that. But it's got that very, very thick red skin, so it keeps very well and and maintains its shelf appeal for a long time. Um, and so that's why. It's, also, it's very heavy for its size, so you get a higher per kilogram price for it. And this is the reason that that. Mm. Um, Supermarkets love it. It's actually a sport of an earlier variety called just plain old delicious. And delicious really is delicious. But it's a, a yellow apple with red stripes. Um, and uh, it, it's much nicer than its red sport. When I say sport, what, what happens is one branch of the tree will spontaneously mutate and into a, into a different variety. And then horticulturists are able to graft that variety and, and turn it into something mm. new. Yep. So, yeah. yep. so that's, that's the big apple. Then, then the next one down I've got is the Rolls Royce of all the apples, which is the Cox. Is orange pippin. Oh, my favourite. <laughs> yeah, it's a great apple. It's a brilliant Another apple. Another English apple from the, the 19th century. They, they really knew how to breed apples in the 19th century in England, or select, I should say, because there wasn't any sort of deliberate breeding going on at that time. They just would grow out 1,000 seedlings and 999 of them would be horrible yes. and one would be fantastic and then they would graft that variety. And in fact, it's this... You, you, with any crop of apple seedlings you grow, 999 are rubbish and only one's good. But it's the ability of the apple to be grafted that, that means that it could then be transported to different parts of the world. And most people don't realise, we think of apples as being very English or very, uh, very European, but actually they're native to Kazakhstan. Really? And yeah, to Kazakhstan. Wow. And um, there, Kazakhstan is right in the middle of the Silk Road. Uh, road. Silk Road or Silk Road. <laughs> silk Road. <laughs> yeah. So the, the Silk Road. Um, and so uh, luxury items like um, spices and silks used to be um, traded along the Silk Route between um, East Asia and, and Western Europe. And uh, apples were one of those luxury products that were traded along the Silk Route okay. because of its ability to be grafted. Yep. Um, you could propagate lots of uh, specimens of a particular variety and then you could, you know, 
send them off to Western Europe. And that's how apples came to be in Europe. Yeah, from, right. From so anyway, this Cox's Orange Pippin, again, you won't see them in supermarkets, even though they're the most delicious apple to eat, because they're ugly. Yeah, they're <laughs> they, not overly pretty, are they? They're not, no. They, they're kind of yellow with a, an orange and red stripy overlay, and they've got quite a lot of russeting at the, uh, at the top of the fruit. Now, russeting's that um, brown, uh, rough, sandpapery-feeling skin. It, it's sort of like mm. a bit of it uh, needs a, or something yeah. on that. It looks like it needs some lanolin or something to yeah, smooth it down again. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I mean, we're used to seeing it in a beurre bosque pear, um, and that isn't a problem, but for some reason people don't want to eat apples that have russeting on them. Um, and the final variety of, of apple I brought is fully russeted. Yeah. So like a it actually bosque. looks more like a nashi pear almost. Exactly, to, to, yeah. To, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily go, oh, apple. No, that's <laughs> right. And if you, if you glance at it quickly, you might think potato. <laughs> yes, you yeah, could. It's like a spud. So this is a, a, another English variety um, called Egremont Russet. And this is one of my favourite varieties. It's got quite a dry flesh. It's got a nutty tang. Um, this is a sort of apple you have um, with a cheese platter and a, a glass of wine. Mm. It's quite a grown-up apple. It's mm. it's not a it, it's not an uncomplicated sweet flavour. It's got interesting th- characteristics going on. So it's also a great backyard variety because the trees are very reliable croppers. They they make a lot of fruit spurs. They produce a lot of fruit uh, every year. Um, so I can highly recommend Egremont Russet. Okay, excellent. That's what I brought. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, we have uh, our first listener online, and we will go to uh, Sharon, who's out in Cheltenham. Good morning, Sharon. Uh, good morning. Um, I'm ringing for my sister. Mm-hmm. She has a mature Malaluka tree mm-hmm. in her front yard that started to look sort of pretty ordinary and losing um, some limb, uh, they're wanting to know whether they can cut it back and how much. Mm. Um, and look, I ma- don't know what, it, what sort. Yeah, I was going to say it would depend on the sort of Malaluca because there are oodles yeah. of them to an extent. But most Malalukas can be pruned quite hard. The issue is, will it ever make an attractive plant again? I don't think it's reached that stage. It, um, I probably didn't give you an accurate description. I think it's still pretty good, mm-hmm. but um, because it lost a, a limb that was reasonably sizable, uh, they have trimmed it and it started to shoot, mm-hmm. and I think they're now thinking, will they do that all over sort of thing. Yeah, well, but that's my point. If you cut mm. the whole thing all over, oh, you're going to end up with sort of something that looks like a wig stuck on a branch. Um, and ah. so whether it will ever get back to being an attractive shaped tree again if you cut it all back is the point. And if I you see. don't think, I mean, it will probably shoot. I mean, if it's already done that from a limb that's been removed, it will probably shoot. But mm. the issue then is, will it ever really be an attractive plant again? Um, and my gut feeling is it might not for many, many years. So, and one thing you cannot buy in gardening is time and if you're going to fiddle and faff around with something that may never really be an attractive plant again wouldn't you be better off to remove it and start again with a fresh tree (laughs) yeah they'll love that yeah i'm sure they will uh but it is you know i I mean yeah fine cut it back and i mean they can cut it back quite hard and if they're happy with the result well that's fine but my gut feeling is that it probably isn't going to be a particularly nice plant. When you cut back big limbs uh, mm. into old wood and you end yeah. up with all this fluff sticking out of it, yeah. um, it really isn't a good look. Maybe, what about the concept of doing it slowly, like cut, cut a couple of big ones? Sharing? Well, that just might make the pain go on for longer, yeah. uh, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> um, Great. 
<laughs> and also there's the issue if you start cutting things back in one bit at a time, sometimes they don't shoot as well from where you've cut them because the sap then just gets relocated to the rest of the tree. Uh, and also you can disbalance the look of the tree by removing an odd limb here and there. Yeah. So, you know, it's sort of, I think it's sort of all in or not at all. Right. Um, personally. Uh, and as I said, it's really up to them as to whether the final result is worth having or not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure the tree will respond. I mean, it'll shoot again. I don't have any real fear of that, but I just don't know that it's ever going to be all that attractive. If you hack it back to, you know, into big, big limbs, yeah. um, it's going to take years before you get any sense of balance back again. Yeah, yeah, because they did an evergreen elder that the possums had sort of completely wrecked. Yes. And, and oh, that sorry. came back beautifully. <laughs> Yeah. I, I'm not overly fond of evergreen alders, I have to say. No, I, no. I, I, I think they're a vicious tree with nasty roots and they look like a silver birch that should drop its foliage properly. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm not mad keen on them. I can see their usage if you've got, a say, a drainage line through a big property or something where you want to have something that will take up moisture uh, or something that will uh, yeah. hold banks together and where well, it's damp was, and soggy. But yeah, this was already there in the house mm. and it was getting, getting them westerly shade. Yeah. So I think they thought, oh, we'll hack it back, no loss, because um, they're not really into um, those sort of trees either. But it did respond really well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think they're thinking, oh, they'll do the same with the Melanook, but it's a different kettle of fish. Well, they're a different sort of tree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they will respond in a different sort of way. And really, at the end of the day, it's all about aesthetics. So yeah. if the tree looks good when you've dealt with it, fine. If yeah. it doesn't look good, well, then you have to make some more uh, vicious decisions. Uh, and sometimes people can't see the garden for the tree. <laughs> you know, they keep it because it's there instead yeah. of analysing whether it's in fact paying its way in one, one yeah. form or another. Um, I'm forever wandering around my garden looking at things and saying, now, I planted that 30 years ago. Oh, I'm getting a bit bored with it or it's getting too big or it's just not performing as well as it used to because yeah. other things are crowding it in. And I think, well, I've had 30 years worth of value out of the tree that cost me 20 bucks. What's wrong with taking it down? And then I end up with yep. mulch and kindling and firewood and, and a yeah. gap. <laughs> I've got about eight plants that I've decided have got to go, mainly because they're not getting enough sun and then they haven't performed for years. So yeah, I, well, exactly. Yeah. It, it's just, you know, you, do, you have to reassess a garden all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because there will be things that are good for the first few years, but as things grow up around them and all that stuff, they just lose their value in the garden. So you need to reassess and plant things that are more appropriate to the environment that you've actually created. <laughs> Never-ending, isn't it? Gardening it is, is a journey. It is not <laughs> yeah. a destination. No. <laughs> so, yeah, so you, yeah it's, it's an ongoing thing the whole time. So reassessment's really important. Good. All right. Well, thank you. Okay. I'm not Bye sure night. I helped, but there you go. Okay. We've had a query on the outside line. Uh, Kay has pulled out two plants, a salvia and a fuchsia. Uh, because they weren't looking healthy. The roots had white powdery stuff looking like wood ash uh, around them. Uh, what is it? What to do about it? Well, I don't know that you need to do anything about it. It was probably just a mycorrhizal type fungal thing yeah, on the roots. Yeah, that's what it sounds so, like. Yeah, so it was probably keeping them alive. <laughs> so, well, I if mean, they weren't looking healthy, she's now got a gap. Yeah, so well, exactly. An and, and I wouldn't worry about uh, if any of that sort of soil flora... Um, there's not really much of it that is actually nasty and pernicious. You know, I mean, some people end up with things like Phytophthora in their garden or, or, or um, 
well, there's other fungal diseases, mm-hmm. I guess, that you can get by the roots. But most of these sort of fungally things that seem to be in connection with the root systems of plants you take out are normally benign or, in fact, beneficial. So I don't think there's anything to worry about. Uh, I would suggest the salvia and whatever else the other plant fuchsia. was. Fuchsia. fuchsia uh, were just on their last legs anyway, mm. and they were probably, yeah. uh, particularly the fuchsia was probably suffering from drought. Mm. Or, mm. or I, I or have light. that same thing in my garden too, the, the white. Uh, but mm. I think you only notice it. You know, it might be that those plants died from other causes and you only notice the, the white mycorrhiza on the roots because you pulled them out and had a look. Yeah. But it is very strange, isn't it? It's very dry and powdery, and it is exactly like wood ash to look yeah. at. I, I have it in my... Um, one of my perennial gardens as well. Mm. So, but yeah. yes, I don't think it's something to worry about. Mm. Uh, I often find I have fungal things in pots too. You know, you knock something out of a pot and all the root system's covered mm. in sort of a, mm. a fungal mycorrhiza, particularly conifers. Mm. Uh, if you've got a pine in a pot and you tap it out, it'll be all white inside. And mm. It's a bit frightening for people who aren't familiar with it, but it's actually perfectly normal and, in fact, to be um, encouraged. Mm. So, so, yeah, so I don't think I'd worry about it particularly. In fact, we were, we were talking about this only last week on air, um, you know, how mycorrhizal activity in the garden needs to be encouraged mm. and, and, and what a fantastic, I mean, that, that's your living soil for mm. you. It's, mm. it's just a part of it. Yeah. And look, sometimes there are fungal things that will be attached to the roots of dying plants, but that's because they're living off dead matter too. Mm. You know, so they live off the decaying things in a garden. Yep. So sometimes if you've got a three quarters dead plant, you pull it out, well, a lot of its roots may well be covered mm. in fungus because those roots are actually dead and the fungus yeah. is starting to drop The fungus is symptomatic rather than causal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I've never actually been particularly worried about anything like that in the garden soil. I mean, I just see it as part of the normal active thing and it's just there and I never question it and, and I've certainly never tried to spray it out. Mm. Oh, um, don't do that. No, so, um, in fact, I don't remember the last time I used a fungicide. Must have been a long time ago. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I just let nature take its course. Yep, on exactly. Those things. Good, good. Okay, that number again, if you'd like to join us, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Uh, we do run through until 9.15, so plenty of time for you to get in your comments or your queries. The number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air. We have Stephen Ryan and Simon Rickard in the studio this morning. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Anne on the outside line, 94198377. Stephen, you're a bit like Robin Hood this morning. Well, I am in Sherwood Forest. Bit of a forest, yes. yes. Um, (laughs) I thought it would be fun to talk about some evergreen oaks because people in general don't think of oak and evergreen in the same breath. Um, And yet it's a huge genus that is, you know, all over the Northern Hemisphere particularly um, and comes from all sorts of different habitats. And in general, oaks are exceedingly hardy trees. Um, Most oaks will cope with any amount of coal we can throw at them in Australia. Most oaks will even cope with as much drought as we can throw at them in Australia. Um, They are long-lived, they're attractive trees and and probably not utilised enough in Australia because particularly where you've got acreage, uh, some of these evergreen oaks could be fantastic hedging, screening, uh, shade trees. Mm. Uh, I mean, you could use a lot of them in lots of different ways. and some of them have all sorts of interesting asides. For instance, like the biggest one I brought along is actually a cork oak. Now, I don't know whether you're going to create your own cork for your own wine bottles. And these <laughs> days with the screw top, who needs to? Um, <laughs> True. But a well-grown cork oak is yeah. a sight to see. 
I mean, they are just so beautiful. I mean, there's a gorgeous one um, at the Hobart Botanic Gardens, just as you're going into the gardens there, which is a wonderful old gnarly tree. And that's something old, old evergreen or live oaks, as they often call them, do well. They make this wonderful, old, rugged, mm. fabulous tree. The problem is you have to live long enough for old mm. and rugged to set in. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, uh, if we're not planting these things, the next generation isn't going to appreciate them either. And most oaks are faster growing than people give them credit for. Stephen, in fact, the, the cork oak was the inspiration for the new arboretum in Canberra. Mm. Uh, I grew up in Canberra and there was a, a plantation of cork oaks planted in, I think, the 1930s um, a, as a kind of trial crop to see if this could be a... Um, uh, an economical plant for Australia um, and that never really took off. But, That's because um, they hadn't invented the cork platform shoes at that time. <laughs> the, the, yeah. the wedgies hadn't the, come yeah, in. Yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> but um, uh, so the, the, the people who designed the Arboretum um, loved this cork oak. That They loved the fact that when you walked into this grove of cork oaks, it had different acoustical qualities. It changed, you mm. know, it was quiet in there, it was crunchy underfoot, um, and, and you were in this block of a single variety of tree. And so with that in mind, they then set up the Arboretum, instead of one of this and one of that, there are, you know, acre blocks of each variety of tree so mm. that you can go in and experience what it's, it's like an to be in a grove of... Yeah, yeah. yeah, and that was all inspired by this grove of cork oaks yeah. on, the wow. lake, on the shores of Lake And that means you save all that money going to Portugal, <laughs> I guess. <Exactly. laughs> um, but yeah, so the cork oak is probably one of the best known uh, of the evergreen oaks. But there's evergreen oaks that come from all over the place, and I've got uh, a really interesting little collection here. I've got uh, Quercus ulnifolia, which is the golden oak of Cyprus. Now, this particular oak is on the endangered species list. Uh, it's on the oak red database or something or another, whatever it's called. Uh, so it's quite rare in the wild. So that gives it another sort of cachet as a garden plant because it's rare. You know, you're doing your little bit in a way. Okay, uh, why is it called golden? Well, because the underside of the leaves has ah, this amazing wow. golden yellow farina under the foliage. Fantastic. Uh, so it's at the top of the leaf is nice and glossy and shiny and yep. round uh, and heavily veined. But the underside has this amazing, well, almost sulfur yellow. Mm. Look, yes, it is. More than gold, perhaps even. Uh, now, this is not a big tree. This is a shrubby oak. Okay. So it'll probably only get to three or four metres uh, and it'll make a gnarly little tree. Uh, if you could get enough of it and probably never, never could, it would make a fabulous screening plant uh, in a suburban-sized garden. You could use it instead of potosporum. Um But then uh, you'd have to wait a long time. Uh, but it would make a great bonsai plant. There's all sorts of... You, it'd make a good tub specimen um, coming from Cyprus. It will cope with heat and dry. It's Mediterranean. Um, and, and it looks absolutely nothing like an oak tree, uh, which makes it sort of fun in a way too because uh, if you've got something like this growing in the garden and people come and say, oh, what's that thing with the shiny leaves? And you say oak, they say, oh, you're nuts, can't be, it doesn't look like an oak. And then you can go into the whole history of the plant. And at the end of it, they've learned something and, you, and you've looked smart. So I reckon that works <laughs> for everybody. Um, so that's the uh, golden oak from Cyprus. And the last two I've got are two American live oaks, and that's where the term live oak tends to have come from. The Americans call their evergreens live. Okay. Um, and we have the Californian live oak, which is, is uh, Quercus agrifolia as opposed to ulnifolia of the Cyprian oak. Uh, and it will make a huge, big, spreading shade tree in time. It's the sort of thing that... You know, you'd probably make a mint julep and, and, and wear crinoline and sit under and go, ret, ret, don't leave me ret. Um, <laughs> and it'd be festooned with Spanish moss and things. You know, that sort of look. Okay. Uh, so if you can visualise that, which I hope you can after my hugely descriptive sort of thing. Um, 
So it could get to 20 to 30 metres in time, but it's going to take a long time to get there. It has a fairly classical oak-shaped leaf, in fact. It sort of looks a bit like an oak. It does. uh, But it's smaller in leaf than, say, an English oak, and it's evergreen. Um, and it will in time make a magnificent and interesting tree. And these trees grow in areas where they get no summer irrigation whatsoever. Mm. So once they're established in the ground, you'd probably water these things for the first summer, maybe the second summer. But after that, you should be able to walk away from them and never touch them again. And that applies to the cork oak. It also applies to the golden oak of Cyprus. Uh, and it also applies to my final oak, which is Quercus douglasii, uh, the blue oak. And it's another evergreen tree, not of, as big as the live oak, but it could get to 18, 20 metres eventually. And it has an almost holly-like leaf, and it's a sort of a grey-green, hence blue oak. Yep. So from a distance, it has that greyish colour that we actually are quite used to of in this country with all of our eucalyptus. Of course. Because it's a similar sort yep. of shade of green that our eukes do. Um, and um, it will make a, a charming tree, given time. And... Look, everybody says, oh, oak trees, so slow, all that sort of stuff. Um, but it's surprising. You plant these things in the ground, the first year or so they'll settle in. After that, you know, you'll get 30, 40 centimetres a year on a lot of these plants. Well, except for the golden oak of Cyprus, because it's not going to get that big anyway. Um, and everything in hindsight doesn't seem to have taken so long. Mm. So you think forward and you think, oh, God, in 10 years mm. I might have a small tree. But you look back 10 years later and you go, my God, look at that tree, how quickly mm. that's grown. Mm. Mm. Um and you'll have something in your garden that probably nobody around you has, mm. which I think makes it even more precious. Because gardening for me is all about experimenting, growing things you've never grown before. Uh, and I might not be able to have a Lamborghini in the garage, but I can have a gold oak of Cypress in my garden. <laughs> well, if I had the money for a Lamborghini, I'd be quite happy. Uh, and you if can't enough go people over buy any my bumps oaks. In the road. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, we don't, yeah. I, I get annoyed if some boffin on radio or television turns around mm. you and says, go and see what everybody else is growing, plant some of those because it's bound to work. Mm. Now, in, uh, in one level, that's true. Mm. But on the other level, all it's doing is encouraging people to plant yet again the same old stuff that everybody else has got instead of planting something that will make their mm. garden unique. Yeah. So It's interesting that, that slow-growing plants, being slow-growing is sometimes seen as a reason not to grow a plant. Like, mm. but, but really, the, like you say, the earlier you get started, the, the quicker you get a result. So don't mm. let it turn you off, the fact that a plant's slow-growing. Yeah. And in fact, it's, it's something to watch and enjoy. Yeah. Um, I mean, the only time I can think of where you might need something fast-growing is if the neighbours are looking into your bathroom window from their kitchen. <laughs> and I always figure the easy way to stop that is just walk backwards and forwards naked a couple of times. They'll stop looking. Um, but generally speaking, something slower growing in a garden, it often has more longevity anyway. It's likely to be there forever That's and ever right. and ever. Um, and you get the pleasure of watching it. And, mm. and I say to all of you out there, especially those of you heading towards the 80th year of your life, that when you get to 80, plant something that takes 20 years to flower so it gives you something to live for. Mm. <laughs> It's cheery. Yeah. Well, it sort of does. I have this plan. I'm going to plant a magnolia camberlite on my 80th birthday. So you're going to live for 110. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and that seems reasonable because I actually don't care whether you actually make it or not, in a sense. Mm. It's the watching of something grow, the nurturing of something. And if, in fact, you do manage to flower it before your demise, then you can throw a huge big party. 
<laughs> and it's a damn good excuse for it. So, yeah, I think we need to be more relaxed about things in our garden. We don't need to be swinging hammocks from everything we plant immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of these live oaks, I think, are just really interesting trees um, that are underutilised in our climate, which is mm. absolutely perfect for them. Well, I agree. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that, that, that this blue oak looks a bit like um, a, a gum tree from a, a distance. Yeah. And, in fact, they're ever, all these evergreen oaks, they're evergreen, they're sclerophyll plants, so they have the same adaptation to drought as our gum trees. Mm. So um, that's why they're evergreen and have this hard leaf as an adaptation to drought. And, yeah, yeah that's why they are, as Stephen says, so tough. Yeah, and, of course, do, you yeah. see them in old farms, don't you, that have been neglected mm. and no mm. one's taken a scrap of notice of them for decades yeah. and they look beautiful. Yeah. Well, there's actually a really nice holm oak, Quercus ilex, growing in a little park at the bottom of Mount Macedon. And I notice it every time I go past. I mean, it's not a tree that leaps at you. It doesn't do autumn colour. It doesn't do anything sort of amazing. But it's got this wonderful, dense mm. canopy. It's a really rich green. Uh, uh, it's just a really nice-looking tree. Mm. And, and perhaps nice isn't a good term to use, but anyhow... Um, uh, it's just, and it's interesting because, you know, who thought to plant a holm oak in a little park in Macedon mm. way back probably in the 1930s or earlier? Mm. Um, it was an odd sort of choice to make because it's never been a commonly planted tree. Uh, and here it is, a nice mm. well-grown one mm. that somebody thought to plant back then and now we're reaping the benefits of this mm. really interesting tree. I know the tree. tree you mean, actually, Stephen, and it kind of just it steps back into the shade in summer. You don't notice it. And in autumn, when all the autumn colours around, you don't notice it. But then in winter, it, yeah. it steps into the limelight and all all of a sudden you think, wow, that is a really awesome black green tree. You know, yeah. it's just it's got so much presence in winter and then it's very polite in summer and lets other yeah. trees take the limelight. Yeah, and, and I could I, you know, if I if I'd bought a farm and had one, I would see those sorts of trees as fantastic to put into mm. farming places for screening and shade in, in farm properties. Mm. Um, well of course a holm oak's also the host for the truffle fungus, the black perigord yes, truffle. Exactly. Uh, oh yes, and of course that's something that we're all going to make a fortune out yeah. of. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm training my new corgi to be a truffle hunter, I think, because he keeps coming in from the garden with the toadstools that he (laughs) finds in the back garden and then pulls them to bits on the carpet. (laughs) <laughs> and all this black sporal stuff. Ah, yeah, and I'm, it hasn't hurt him, so I'm assuming it's not a poisonous fungi that he's found but out. But you can't sell them for $3,000 a kilo. No, no, it's not a truffle, but he obviously has a nose for fungi. So, <laughs> yeah, there yeah, you so go. I could make a fortune out of Barnaby. But, but the Australian truffle industry is doing well. It's, yeah. it's, it's growing. It's, it's getting stronger. Absolutely. But yeah. it is certainly something you don't want to start too old no, 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 that's that's true. Yeah, yeah, I think you need to start as a youngish person if you're mm. going to start truffle farming. And I think there's a bit of a myth also that that trufries are, are um, set and forget. You know, you just put your trees in and forget about them. But actually, they require management if you want them to produce good crops of truffles. Um, they do need um, summer irrigation. Uh, they you need to. Have, the most important thing is that the soil pH needs to be brought up to uh, around about eight, which is very alkaline. Yeah, and we that's, don't have a lot of those soils in Australia. No, we no, don't. we don't. Sorrento and Portsea, there are some in South Australia. So limestone soils are what the what the truffles grow in, in Europe. The holm oaks grow in a much the holm oaks will grow in any pH, mm. but the truffle fungus, the mycorrhizal fungus, just like the, the the ladies, the caller who spoke earlier about this white powdery stuff on her roots, that will only live in it with a pH of around about 8. So uh, a lot of pe- people who are growing truffles commercially will mulch with limestone chips to, okay. to get their soil pH up to the right level. Yep. And so then now um, what causes the fruiting bodies of the truffles to uh, initiate um, on, the, on the fungal my- mycelia uh, is summer storms over in Europe. 
So the ancient Greeks used to think that, that truffles were the fruits of um, thunderstorms, of rainstorms, and wherever a lightning bolt struck, <laughs> a truffle would grow under the ground. Um, but it turns out that that, that summer um, injection of water is what initiates the... Right. Uh, so that's why they need a little bit of a summer irrigation at certain times to initiate fungal growth, uh, sorry, the, the fruiting body to grow, yep. and then that will ripen around about the shortest day of the year in the middle of June, end of June. Right. So, you know, there's a little bit involved with growing truffles. And then, of course, as Stephen says, you've got to have the dogs to, to sniff them out and dig them up. Um, I've got a corgi I'll rent. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there's a, there's a woman in my town in Trentham, uh, Georgie Patterson, who um, goes all over Victoria with her truffle dogs. She's, uh, she trains truffle dogs, and then she goes around to all of the different um, trufries and, and, and harvests the, the, the crop over the course of winter. So she's a very busy lady in winter. I bet. Mm. Well, particularly her dogs, by the sound yeah, of it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, of course, the other thing we haven't spoken about is acorns. Yes. Oh, yeah. Acorns are... I mean, are how a... can you forget acorns? And I might add, it is interesting that um, um, our native animals have worked acorns out. A lot of the parrots and things are now using them as a food source. Um, and, you know, people say, oh, we should be planting native, we should be planting native. And I can sort of see where you're going, you know, to put native trees in is a good thing. But you shouldn't discard exotic trees because you think that they're not going to be a useful resource. I mean... How many apples do you end up with if you don't net your apple trees yeah, with the parrots and the yeah. galahs? My and the sediums cockatoos. at the moment are covered with three species of native bee. Mm. You know, and the bees aren't checking the passport of the sediment, going, "Oh, sorry, you're exotic. I'm not yeah. going to. I'm not going to drink your nectar." No, they just actually <laughs> what they're doing is they're going, "Oh, you know, we could be having Mexican tonight." What maybe Thai? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, so you know, we're giving our animals actually a broader palate, and that in some cases can be a problem because actually we're encouraging some species of our native animals to in fact breed up because we're giving them far more food sources than they would have otherwise had. Mm, Rosebuds Uh, for possums. Yeah, well, exactly. And, uh, I mean, the, the... the yellow-tailed black cockatoos around Macedon, which we rarely saw up until a few years ago, are now everywhere around our area, and they're going for the radiata pine cones. And they pull them to bits with amazing alacrity mm. and pull out the, the beautifully rich nutrient uh, seeds that are in the Pinus radiata cones. Uh, so they're getting great food sources, and they're actually helping to control a potentially feral weedy tree because mm. Pinus radiata self-seeds itself all over the joint, yeah. uh, even though we're still planting forests of it for the timber. Um, so it's got out into the wild quite a lot. And I bet over the next few years that there'll be less radiata pine germinating around because of the yellow-tailed blacks mm. uh, finding it as, as a good food source. Mm. Uh, and some of the sulphur-crested's have worked it out as well. And, of course, mm. they all live such a long time. Once they've worked something out, they teach everybody else. Mm. And before you know it, that, that's sort it's of de Yeah, mm. that's right. Yeah, they'll, they'll be making pesto before you know it. Mm. <laughs> the other thing that eats acorns, of course, are the, are the pigs in... Yes. Is that what you were going to say? Yes. yes. Prized ham, you know, a berico ham and things that will come from pigs fed on acorns. Yeah. From the whole moak, the same one yes. as the, the truffle. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, so the, the acorn itself could become a resource. Um, and, uh, and they're nice. I like the look of acorns. There's something about acorns. I don't know what it is. They've but got a personality. They have. Yes. Um, I might add, though, just in passing, whilst we're talking about acorns, is that if you're going to grow any of these trees from seed, it is really important that you know your seed source because if you go, say, for for instance, say, into the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne onto the Oak Lawn and you pick up some of the acorns there, even if they've dropped from, you know, Quercus castanifolius or whatever, because there's so many oaks in that 
particular area, and oaks are wind-pollinated and very promiscuous. Rampantly promiscuous. Yeah, yeah they are the sluts of the plant world, uh, and they you'll end up with hybrid oaks, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but you can't uh, say that it's definitely a such-and-such oak anymore. Mm. So if you're going to raise them from seed commercially, certainly you need to have seed sources that are comparatively isolated uh, so that you can feel reasonably confident that you're selling the right tree. Uh, well, of course, the symbol of the Macedon Horticultural Society is a hybrid oak, isn't it? It, it is, yes. What we call Quercus firthii. Uh, it was named after George Firth, who was the head propagator at the uh, Macedon State Nursery many, many years ago. And he discovered what we assume is a hybrid between the pin oak and one of the evergreen oaks. We've never been quite sure what the other parent was. Uh, I think growing in the nursery down there and so he started raising it and it comes comparatively true to seed. You get a little bit of variation but that's normal even in a true species. Mm. Um, and it's a sort of semi-evergreen oak. It tends to colour really late in the year and sheds in bits and pieces so it drives most tidy gardeners insane <laughs> uh, instead of dropping neatly and, and all in autumn and clean up and it's done. So, you know, all your cleaning up's done, then the massive oak decides to shed. <laughs> um, and Dame Elizabeth Murdoch planted two of those in her garden down at Cruden Farm and they're both on the National Tree Register uh, and she lived long enough to have a tree she'd put in the ground put on a National Tree Register which I think is possibly unique. It proves your point though doesn't it Stephen? Yep. Yeah, well, she did plant them as a young 19 or 20 year old bride, uh, and then lived to be over 100. Yeah. So she, so <laughs> she, ma- yeah, yeah, so <laughs> she did manage to have quite good longevity herself. Uh, but her massive oaks in the garden down there are truly beautiful. Mm. Uh, and yeah, so the, it's the only sort of tree that has a distinct connection to Mount Massadon, really, in some ways. So yes, our local Hort Society's taken it on as our symbol. Fair enough. Um, and it's a nice oak. I mean, it makes a beautiful tree, but it can be messy at the wrong time of the year for a lot of people. Uh, but if you're an oak collector, that's sort of all part of the fun. Mm. I mean, oaks create an awful lot of biomass, uh, mm. but that becomes compost and that goes back into the soil. And um, Well, it makes the nicest leaf mould, really, oh, doesn't it? Yes. Oak, oak, oak leaf, leaf mould is yummy. Yeah. It's yeah. Wonderful stuff. So, yeah, so I think the oaks are an underutilised group of trees, and that's why I decided this morning would be a good time to talk about them. And even in your tiny suburban garden, you could have a golden oak of cypress. Uh, you could have a Kermes oak. There's quite a number of small growing evergreen oaks uh, that would be perfectly suitable as a small tree for a, a suburban yard, as well as the, the larger growing ones like the Californian live oak. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, there's an oak for everybody. Absolutely. So there we go. Yep. Simon, we've had a listener ask for details again of your open garden, please. Certainly. Uh, my garden is open on the 13th and 14th of March. So that's the Sunday and Monday of the uh, Labor Day ne- uh, next weekend. Next weekend. Yep. Sunday and Monday, uh, not Saturday, only Sunday and Monday from 10 till 4. Um, it's free for Diggers Club members and entry is $10 for everybody else. And times? Uh, 10 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon. And address? Uh, it, oh, it's in the town of Trentham, which is uh, up... Well, it's in a triangle formed by Dalesford, Woodend and Kyneton. So it's about an hour and a quarter northwest of Melbourne, up the Calder Highway, uh, called Freeway. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's in Groves Street, as in Groves of Oaks. And um, it, uh, it, it will be signposted. Be also, my house is currently being painted... And I'm having my house painted bright red. So just look for the red my house. My goodness. Yeah, you won't be able to miss it. That's a statement. Yeah, I know, because I'm normally quite a shrinking violet, but I thought... <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so just look for the Red House in Trentham um, with, with masses in fact, of... it'll become a local landmark and people will go, oh, Red House, don't Oh, it? Red House, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's over there. Yeah, look, can't for the, look for the place with the weeds. You yeah. know, <laughs> it's funny, isn't it, that, that saying about cobbler's children going unshod and plumbers having leaky taps. Well, gardeners have weeds. So, <laughs> you know, you'll have to forgive me a few weeds if you come to oh, visit absolutely. my garden. That's called butterfly habitat. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yes. There's always an excuse. Positive spin. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I do quite like it if you do manage to miss something, particularly if it's a huge milk thistle sticking up in the middle of a garden somewhere, which is always the weed you miss. Yeah. Not the little tiny they ones. Hide. They hide. They hide. And you don't, well, hide. you're sort of at ground level and you sort of miss the you tall don't ones. Look up. Yeah. And it's sort of comforting for people when they walk in and they find one. Yes. You know, oh, he's they, human they, after yeah, all. Yeah, that's right. You know, the garden's not absolutely perfect. Look, there's a milk thistle. And if they ever point it out to me, I say, oh, that's for the birds. On the other hand, and if you're ever visiting gardens, don't pull out weeds in other people's gardens because, A, it's very, you know, it's rude. It's not helpful. It's actually rude. And, B, they might not be weeds. You might think they're weeds, but they might yes. not be. And I've had an experience where um, a visitor to Heronswood um, one year came up to me in the garden. She stomped up to me with a great big handful of seedlings in her hand of weeds, or what she thought were weeds. And she said, look, I've just pulled out all these weeds for you. I think it's disgusting. I've paid all this money to get in and see all these weeds. And I said, well, actually, they're poppy seedlings that, are, that I sowed two months ago for our um, Melbourne Cup display. And you've actually just undone two months of work. So awesome. Thanks for that. <laughs> yes. So, you know, don't pull out weeds at what you think are weeds in other people's garden because they might not be. Hmm. Exactly. Just saying. Yeah, yep. yeah. No, and look, there are certain polite things in gardening. That's yeah, one of them. Exactly. You should never pull anything out in a garden. And you certainly shouldn't help yourself to seeds, cuttings, flowers. Absolutely and apples, not. Yeah, apples. <laughs> and, and I always say to people, look, just take me to the plant. Don't take the plant yeah, to me. That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because, well, the wonderful you know, thing about iPhones is that people can photograph something. If, they, if they're wondering what it is, they can take a photo on their phone, mm. then come, and up, come and up and ask and me, what's say, this? Because yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming you, like me, wouldn't have white labels sticking up everywhere. I don't every have week. white labels. Nah. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it doesn't do it for me. I mean, it might be convenient to have everything labelled, but it never really works when you have an opening either no, because no. either people didn't bring a pen so they steal your label because <laughs> they desperately want to know what it is or the label's not legible enough from a distance so they step into the garden to read the label, which means, of course, they've just crunched your colchicums into the ground. Um, and so just and, and you always have the things labelled that you think people will want to know the name of and it's always the one you missed. Yep. Yeah. That they need the name of anyway. Yeah. So yeah, so labelling is a, I think, a counterproductive mm-hmm. process, uh, and it certainly takes away from the look. If you've got labels big enough for people to actually read, uh, then they're not actually going to look at the plants. Mm. And so, it's a little bit of plants. so I'm not saying I don't want anyone to visit my garden. I do, but uh, we're just talking about garden etiquette today, yeah. aren't we? Yes, yeah. well, we are. And and there are things about it. And certainly if you're bringing children, control them. Otherwise, they get thrown in my fish pond. Um, and I don't care if it's slimy. Uh, kids... And of course, your piranhas have grown quite fat on that over the years. Yeah, well, they they? have really. You know, it's a food source. (laughs) Um, So, um, yeah, children, as much as I love kids to enjoy the experience of visiting a garden, after all, I want them to be the next uh, gardeners, but they don't have the same sort of barriers about running through garden beds and and things as as I hope most adults have. Um, So you do have to watch your children. I mean, bring them along, let them enjoy the garden, point out the pretty flowers to them, Give them a learning experience, but do control them and preferably keep them reasonably quiet because it does impinge on other people's uh, enjoyment if kids are screaming and yelling and, and 
what have you. And leave the soccer ball at home. You obviously leave oh, the soccer yes. ball at home. And it's probably not a good idea, good idea to bring your dog into people's Stephen, gardens. Stephen, we're making ourselves sound, sound, sound like very grumpy old men, aren't we? <laughs> and actually, we're both really nice guys, listeners. Yeah. So. <laughs> Although old is getting closer and closer, and I feel myself definitely there. Um, I would just say I'm a little more opinionated than I might have been 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, and, you know, my place is my place. Remember that people are letting you into their own personal That's space. True. Exactly. Uh, and so you need to respect and it. And must be respected. Yeah. I mean, would you like me to come and look in your wardrobe uh, <laughs> or your knickers drawer or something? I mean, it's almost that invasive in a way because you, you garden for yourself and then you're letting other people look mm. at it. Um, it's, it's a very personal thing. <laughs> when, I, when I lived at Heronswood, when I was the head gardener at Diggers and I lived at Heronswood House and we used to open the house twice a year for, for a charity in East Timor and people would look in my fridge and, oh, <laughs> I, and surprisingly enough they'd find milk and butter and you know, all the things you'd expect in a fridge but it was funny, they it would treat it like it was some kind of open air museum or, or something. I don't know what they were expecting to yeah. see in my fridge. Yeah. Well, maybe that sort of limp piece of celery. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's you, people respect, do take things just a little respect. far sometimes. Yeah. But that's, yeah. you know, that's human nature. Um, I actually found that people like to stick their nose against windows. Right. Which is quite interesting. They can't help but look inside, even if they're only paying for the outside. So I should buy a bottle of Windex, should I, before? Yeah, I make your windows nice and clean, but then... Close the curtains. No, well, you can do that, but I actually stuck a stuffed fox on the inside of my uh, French doors. (laughs) So Basil Brush was looking out when people looked in. That's a good idea. (laughs) And I got some fantastic responses from that. That that went very well. So, yes, you can ride with it and make a bit of a joke out of things. It can be quite fun. I remember when Lindsay and Paula Fox opened their garden down in Turak once and and they had sort of a sliding door into the kitchen area and there was a little tiny table just inside the door and Paula had turned all of the family photos around to face out so people could see Lindsay with his first truck and, you know, all that sort of thing, which I thought was rather cute. (laughs) Yeah, it's very nice. You know, so, you can can go with it a bit if you want. Absolutely, Mm. yeah. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We're running through until 9.15. If you'd like to uh, jump on the phones and give us a call, we'd love to hear from you. That number... Nine four one nine zero one double five to speak to Stephen, Simon or myself. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Anne on the outside line, nine four one nine eight three double seven. Uh we've got uh oh a little um okay. I'm getting a photo apparently of a of a tree in the Carlton Gardens that they a listener needs so I'll wait for fun. that yes. to <laughs> arrive. I hope it's a good photo. Um, <laughs> if you just see a green blob in a picture, it can sometimes be quite difficult to ID. Well, uh, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll wait till that arrives. Yep. Oh, yep. So we're doing lots of modern technology here, isn't that Oh, amazing? we are. We yeah, are. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Okay. Um, Simon, Japanese ginger. Yes. Do you know anything oh, about it? Oh, myorga. I sure do. Ginger by myorga. Um, it's, uh, it's a ginger relative. It's a very cold, uh, tolerant ginger because it is native to Japan where they get very cold winters. So unlike the, the, um, tropical ginger that we're used to eating, this myorga will, um, um, live right through our, through cold winters. Um, you don't eat the root of the myorga plant. You actually eat the flower buds, which come up in, in, um, 
let me think, what season do they come up? I think they come up in summer. And uh, they're about two inches, two or three inches long, and they're pink, and they're kind of shaped like a, a torpedo or a, or a spindle. And um, in Japanese cuisine, they're eaten raw, very, very sli- thinly sliced, um, kind of as a, a garnish, really, like a, like a, in the way we'd use a herb. Okay. Um, they're also pickled in, uh, in, in vinegar and salt, and, um, and they've got a lovely crunch to them. So they've got a, a similar taste to ginger. They also have a bit of a the background flavour is is like uh, you know the f- the flavour of egg egg whites yeah it's it's got a bit of that on the on the back palate as well but it's not offensive I mean no. in the same way that eating a meringue isn't offensive okay so yeah um that's that's milga okay yeah, um, it's also used in a, a special kind of pickle um they make in, in Kyoto called um shibazuke um which has got which has got the normal ginger and myoga, uh eggplant and cucumbers in it and it's a specialty of the Kyoto area. Mm. And yeah, if people want to come to Japan and experience Japanese food and plants with me, I'm leading a tour um in twenty seventeen. Well I'm I'll be there for all of April this year and all of April in twenty seventeen as well, um, for Botanica World Discoveries. And yep. uh, and my my other uh, botanical guide next year will be uh Toby Musgrave, who's the ah. um British um garden a historian, garden historian and garden writer okay yeah, who's excellent. actually in australia at the moment uh, giving seminars right so yeah who asked about about japanese ginger ah uh, well i was given one okay um yep. but it's still sitting in its pot at the moment yep. on it's actually sitting on my kitchen windowsill just getting um you know facing east yeah uh but wondering whether i should now really plant it out eventually, and, and, and if so, what sort well, of conditions? I, well, it likes a bit of shade. It's a forest plant, and in, in Japan you'll see it under a deciduous canopy. It, it, yep. It's um, a herbaceous perennial, so it dies right back in winter and then yep. comes up again in spring. Um, I've got one, uh, or I had three in my garden, but they've really gone backwards because I'm not willing to give them the water they need. Yes, so it, I it think does seem to like a lot of water. Yeah. A lot yeah. of things in that group do. They're yeah. moisture-loving plants, yeah. really, aren't yes. they? I mean, some of the gingers will cope with drought, but they won't perform well. No, no. You know, if you want even your commonest ginger to really do its stuff, you need yep. to pump it up a bit. That's mm. right, yeah. So it could, it could actually remain in a pot. Oh, yeah, you could grow it in a pot, no worries at all. Because Put it in a water well pot. In a, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, I've got it sitting in a, in, a, in a basin, so I just keep topping up the water. Yeah, plenty, plenty of water. Plenty of water. Plenty of water yep. in the summer, and I would let it dry out a bit in the winter, I think. Yep. Yep. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah, but it's a very pretty plant too. Um, another one in that group um, which is very pretty is the cardamom plant. Mm. Um, they make a lovely um, evergreen in Melbourne clump of um, uh, of nice apple green strappy foliage. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're, they're a bit, I mean, of course, there's all the hedicums, aren't there? All oh, the yes, yes. Gingers. Yeah, all the ornamental gingers and uh, lots of those are, uh, um, well, one or two of them almost nasty weeds really Mm. Um, but they're all pretty Mm. uh, and they all have great foliage I do love perennials with good foliage Mm. because a lot of perennials we plant we plant for the colour of their flowers and we often ignore the leaves Mm. Uh, but things like gingers and cannas and all those sort of things have wonderful exotic looking foliage and you know you want to rush inside put on your leopard skin lap lap and swing through the trees (laughs) when you plant enough of that sort of stuff Um, not that the neighbours approve, but doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but yeah, all those gingers and canners and all that sort of stuff. I mean, they're the sort of plants we can grow in non-tropical areas uh, that give us a tropical mm. exuberance. Yes. And, and I really love that in gardens. I mean, I know people in Queensland want to grow Japanese maples and have autumn colour. Uh, so there's no reason why I shouldn't want to have a tropical exuberance. Uh, and they're great for that. Yep. Brilliant. Okay. We're going next to uh, Marilyn, who's in Sunshine. Morning, Marilyn. 
Good morning. Um, look, I've got, I'm not sure if it's a nectarine or a peach tree in a pot plant. It's only about 18 inches high, but the roots are coming out the bottom of the pot. Mm-hmm. So can I plant it now or do I need to wait? I personally wait till autumn. Well, maybe. Or Although the cooler. I don't know. It, it depends. Are you prepared to do some watering? Yes. Well, if you're prepared to do some watering, uh, if you dig the ground over well where you're going to plant it, put in a little bit of compost and things to sort of hold a bit of moisture, uh, plant the tree, make a little reservoir around it so you can water and the water will go down. The good thing about planting in the autumn is, of course, that the ground is still warm. And if you can keep the water up until we do get rain, uh, which might only be a week or two away, who knows, uh, don't look like that, Simon. Uh, I, <laughs> I could agree describe what it looked like. When, Pam and but, I rolled our eyes yeah, when, when Stephen said that. Well, Marilyn. look, you've got to be an optimist here. But having said that, if you can get roots moving on things early enough, then they hit the ground running when the next spring comes along. So I don't disregard the idea of planting, even if the ground's a bit on the dry side or even parched as it is at the moment, as long as I know I've got to be out there and water and I can. If I can water, I'd probably put down a wetting agent because most of our soils are a bit <laughs> hydrophobic at the moment. Or not a bit, a lot. <laughs> um, uh, but you could plant if you wanted to. Uh, but I wouldn't plant if you know you've got three days of you know, no, 39 no, degrees quick. coming up no, or whatever. No, no. Uh, try and pick when you're going to have a few cool days. And you'd be surprised how quickly a tree will settle in and get uh, its roots moving. It won't grow it anything now but I'm still potting on things at the moment trying to get good root systems under things ready for the winter Um, so I'm still sort of doing a lot of um, planting and potting and what have you Um, and I just keep doing it sometimes the time to do something is when you've got the time to do something Okay, thanks so, very much. Yeah, and whether it's a peach or a nectarine, it won't matter. Yeah. Uh, they're both basically the same hardiness and they're really the same tree. They're identical really. plants. Yeah, yeah. yeah one gets furry skin and the other doesn't. That's about it. <laughs> no worries. Thanks very much. Okay, bye. Bye. And I've got a fabulous seedling nectarine in the garden at home that fruits like mad. Mm. There you go. So, you know, some of those things can be... Yep. Well, yeah, uh, peaches and nectarines, um, uh, you're almost guaranteed to get a good seedling when you plant one of those, unlike apples. In fact, I've got two seedlings up at the moment from last year's seed of the blood peach. Oh, great. Uh, Somebody gave me a couple of seeds of it, and I've got them up about, I don't know, about foot in the old measurement now in Mm. the one season. Lovely. Um, And I'm assuming they'll come true to type, and so I will, I think I'm going to pull out my Anzac peach, which I'm getting sick of because it doesn't really fruit all that well for me, and hasn't done for years, and... And, and it's in a spot where it's far too vigorous anyway. So I'm thinking of pulling it out, and I might put one of my blood peaches in instead. Good idea. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. There are actually lots of Australian um, heritage varieties of peaches because they're easily propagated from seed and give mm. you, you know, and they love our climate. So yeah. um, if there's one that doesn't do well for you, like your Anzac's not doing well, then, then choose a different variety. Yeah. And, yeah. and they crop after two or three years. They're much quicker than things like apples and pears. Yeah. Yep. yeah so you don't have to wait too long. No. And I've actually think I've left my peach in longer than it should be really, uh, mm. n- not practising what I preach. And, mm. and well, that's I, the other thing. I mean, they're not that long-lived, are they, really, yeah. the peaches? If you get 20 years out of them, you've done really well, then mm. just throw them away and start again. Mm. Mm. Excellent. Okay, let's go to uh, John down in Hampton. Good morning, John. Ah, good morning. Um, I, I had a couple of questions, One, two different ones. One was just about the Ballarat Begonia Festival. Is that next weekend? You, you didn't... Look, I, I actually don't we have any been, information no, we about it at all. Anything, no. Goodness me, I might have to check oh, myself. I was in Ballarat yesterday, John, at yep. the Botanical Gardens, and uh, sorry, the day before, and they were installing all of the begonias into the glass house. Oh, so, so it's coming up. I suspect it like, it, I, my wife seems to think it could be next weekend. 
Yes. It would uh, make sense if it's a long weekend. weekend. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, that was uh, one question. The other one was about uh, asparagus fern, and I think I've correctly identified it as that. It's sort of one that has the feathery sort of foliage that you often see in displays. In, yeah, yep. it's often used yep. as a cut foliage, but yeah. It, it's become sort of, it's grown all over the place. It's it got does. a bit out Oh, of it does. It and takes I'm, over. And I have dug it up in the past, but it's a really laborious um, way to get rid of it. It's, mm. it's really, it's almost worse than bamboo. The, you know, the no, it is worse than bamboo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's so, a real thug. Uh, because it's grown in between you know, other plants, you end up damaging everything else when you're digging it up. So yeah. I was wondering if there's, I hate to say this word, but a way of sort of poisoning it. Well, there is. <laughs> uh, and the way you would do it is cut and paint. Uh, oh, so yes. you get some neat roundup with a paintbrush or yep. or you could even put it in one of those squeegee bottles that they have that oh, liquid yes. boot polish in, yep. you know, as long as you've cleaned it well first. Yep. Uh, or just a little squeezer pack, you know, a little yep. sort of atomizer thing, that perhaps you had Windex in or something. Um, yep. And what you do is you cut the stem just a little above ground level and yep. immediately squirt it with a little bit of neat roundup. And that'll do the job. And that should do it. So if you okay. just go along and cut and paint, cut and yep. paint, cut and paint, the whole way across the garden. Yeah. Uh, I won't promise a hundred percent because there'll no, always you will be. You have to do a few yeah, again. There, and look, yeah. there'll be bits that haven't come up from below ground level that you yeah. won't yeah. catch first time round. There may even be a um, a load of seed in the ground if it's been yeah. there long enough. So you may get seedlings coming up as well yeah. later on. Yeah. So yeah. it is a matter of persistence, uh, okay. but it's probably the only way you're going to deal with it. If you want to use uh, a poison to deal with it, that's probably the way to go. Yeah. And at least it's being gently directed in one spot, so you're so not it spraying all over. Right. It won't kill everything else no. around it. No, no. So okay. Well, that's great. Please. That's probably the only way you'll deal with the asparagus. Food. Okay. And you should get rid of it. Uh, I have to say, though, if you've got a local florist, she might like some branches of That's it for right. floral well, it, work. It has grown out all over the place. And people walking by, I think a few of them have got a bit upset about it. You know, the spike thing. Yeah, they, they are a bit Ugh. prickly. So, yes, they can catch the unwary. That's right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, it was the... So do roses, though, Stephen. Yeah, well, no yeah, one's that. stopping planting roses, are Well, they? there is that, yes. I always say to people when they won't buy something with prickles on it, I ask them whether they've got any roses. <laughs> and they always say yes. And I say, well, if you can plant a rose, you can plant a berberus. I can't see any major difference here except for the fact that you don't have to go in and prune the berberus on a regular basis. That's right, so, but, yeah, so if you've got a local florist, they might be happy for you to bring along oh, some of that because well, the asparagus right. fern, I remember, was always the foliage of choice for that cattleya orchid corsage yeah. that the ladies would that's wear. Right. Uh, right. Now I'm showing my age. Yeah, uh, the when they would be going to Deb Balls and, <laughs> and other sundry things. Um, and it was a very popular foliage for that. So you used that for the ladies and you used maidenhair <laughs> fern for the little girls. Well, it does look attractive, but it's um, it's a bit of a pest. You oh, know. it is. It's a thug. Although gardeners make me laugh because they whinge if they can't grow something and then they whinge yeah, if they can. Right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for that advice. I'll try that. Yeah, okay. that's probably Good the way to go. Thank uh, you. Okay. Yeah, some of those plant thugs can be really woeful to mm. deal with. Oh, yes, mm. absolutely. Mm. That number again, 94190155 to have a chat to Stephen or Simon. Or if you'd like to uh, speak to Anne on the outside line, Nine four one nine eight three double seven. You growing any pumpkins? 
I am this year, yeah. yeah. Um, look, pumpkins are marginal in my climate because I have a very short summer and it's usually a very cool summer too. So even if we, we, we only traditionally in Trentham get day, uh, days above 30 degrees, maybe four days a year. Okay. Um, so we don't have a lot of summer heat and that makes it difficult to grow pumpkins and melons and tomatoes and all of that sort of thing. But this year, because it's been, uh, it has been quite warm, and I have got pumpkins that are nearly ripe, and that doesn't happen every year. Every year I grow pumpkins, and come on, come on, you can do ripen, it, ripen, 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 <laughs> and this year they they have, which is nice. And I've grown a heritage variety called Rouge Vif de Tom this year, yes, which gets uh, sold as Cinderella in Australia. It's a great big bright orange. It's a real pumpkins pumpkin. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, well, there's yeah. no, nothing worse than a wussy pumpkin, I always No, no, no. You've got to grow a pumpkin, grow a pumpkin. Yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like a good one. So I've been, in, I've been lucky this year, and I got my first tomatoes ripe last week. I was very proud well of Well done. So, you know, it takes until March to get, to get tomatoes. I, I always think, I don't know about you, Stephen, but I think up there, well, with climate, you can either have a citrus and tomato growing climate, or you can have a berry growing climate, and we've mm. got a berry growing climate. Mm. You know. All the cold climate stuff really does well for us, but yep. things like tomatoes are marginal. Yes. So, yeah. Okay. So to answer your question, yes, I do have pumpkins, and I'm very proud of myself. Oh, that's great. <laughs> well yes. Yeah. And you can thank the climate for that this year. Yeah, making climate change work for me. <laughs> yes, that's right. Exactly. You have bananas in Trenton before you. <laughs> <do it. laughs> um, yeah. This this year I'm trying two different heirloom pumpkins that I haven't tried before because oh, yeah. every year I like to try something different, mm. as Stephen knows. What are you trying? Uh, a Lakota. Oh, okay. Which I've already harvested a couple of them. Uh, they're just curing at the moment and I'm waiting for the, the, the last vine to die on my last two big ones. Very attractive though. They're a middle size one. Yeah. Gorgeous, gorgeous, um, deep, um, deep orange, yeah. but with a bit of, um, green sort of particularly at, at the two ends of it. But, um, really attractive looking one. And the other one I'm yeah, trying right. for the first time is, is well, it's like a bush pumpkin, uh, weeby little, oh, because yes, they're yeah, ones yeah. they're they're for individuals, Very so for cute. baking and stuffing for individual serves, you know. Yeah. But um, because they're they're on a bush, um, like a zucchini, like plant. a zucchini. Yeah. I was going to say like a zucchini. You don't have a vine to wait for it to die mm, off, mm. and and so I'm curious as to whether the whole bush is going to die because it mm. seems to have. Uh, it seems to be spreading itself and starting off almost well, new arms. What of we the call bush. pumpkins are actually four different species of, of cucurbita. There's cucurbita pepo, maxima, moscata, and argyra sperma. And um, so the, the Jack B. Little and the Jack B. Wee varieties, they're um, pepo, so they're, they're related to zucchinis. And as you say, they, they grow as this bush type plant, they don't run everywhere. Yes. Um, and um, the plant will eventually die down, but you can start harvesting them as soon as they, you know, they, they achieve full colour, you can start eating them really. And they're not long-lived pumpkins, so they won't keep in your in your cupboard for three months or six months. They're what Americans would call summer squash, so okay. they're to be consumed, you know, as soon yep. as they're ripe. Yep. Whereas the cucurbita maxima varieties are the ones that get the like Queensland blue. Yes. You know, get a really hard skin, and they'll last for well six months. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got yep. to open them with an axe. <laughs> and those varieties have gone very much out of fashion now. I mean, listeners will remember that that when we were younger, Queensland blue was the variety. 
variety. Oh, why yeah, Mum would buy a half or a quarter pumpkin. Yeah, exactly. Uh, from the supermarket. Yeah, but exactly. now we're all too, you know, oh, I couldn't possibly buy a whole pumpkin or even half a Queensland yeah. blue. So people want these um, little Jap pumpkins, which are um, cucurbita moscata. Mm. And um, so they, you know, you can buy these very neat small slices. But, mm. um, you know, we're, we're really missing out on those big varieties mm. like Queensland blue. And there's nothing wrong with a half or a whole pumpkin. All you have to do is cut it up, turn it into soup and freeze it. Yeah. yeah I mean, right. you know, and then you've got it. Uh, I mean, I don't quite understand why people don't do more of that. Well, even a half will last for, for months, yeah. you know, really. Yeah. So the, I mean, if you, if you want to have a good roast pumpkin, mm-hmm. um, it's those big ones that really have the flavour, mm. I think. Mm. They, they, they're, they're stunning to, mm. to roast up. And roast pumpkin is one of life's major Oh, I think it's just... Yes, <laughs> it's it interesting is. that you two say that because Australia is one of the few pumpkin-eating cultures in the world. Most mm. countries think of pumpkin as stock food. You know, they, they wouldn't dream of eating a, a you know, pig food. Why, you're mental. Why would <laughs> Although you in pumpkin? America they make pumpkin pie, That's so they right. have it as a sweet dish, well, yeah, which exactly. is really weird, which we would never do as a French, rule. The, exactly. the, the French, Australians, Japanese and Americans are pretty much it, really. Um, yeah. Most other cultures don't really eat them. Yeah. Oh, it looks like we've got some more callers we coming have, in. We have, and we're going to find out about the Begonia Festival because we have Kevin from Lara online. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. How are you? Well, thank you. Uh, yes, I'm actually president of the Victorian Begonia Society, and uh, we've got a uh, three-day festival, of course, coming up uh, over the long weekend, and uh, our society have got a, quite a big range of uh, plants for sale and uh, have all the rights of uh, Begonias. And uh, I just thought that uh, you might like to know a bit about it. Sure. Yeah, so the festival's on Friday, uh, Saturday, Sunday and Monday. And um, all admission into the conservatory is uh, where the tubers are, begonias are on display. And then, of course, um, it's free to get in there, of course. And they have a donation box at the beginning if you'd like to donate. But uh, we're, we're the society that um, uh, have our meetings there and... Uh, We've got a couple of marquees this year uh, to sell to sell begonias and uh, display them as well. Excellent. Okay. Well, all good. And was that in, in um, Lara or Geelong, Kevin? Or? No, no, it's in Ballarat. It's, it's oh, the Ballarat one. Oh, okay, one. so yep. you are talking about Ballarat. Great. It's the botanical gardens of the city of Ballarat. Yep. And, uh, it was looking very nice there when I, when I was there on Friday. Yes, it is. It's coming on nicely, and yeah. we'll be setting up there on Friday. And... It, and the, there's quite a lot of family activities as well going on through the day, and uh, it's all all three days actually. So okay. It's, it's well worth a, well worth a visit. Last year where there were sixty six thousand people came through. Wow. And uh, it was a, it's a big event, and uh, the weather looks like it could be quite mild for the for the weekend coming. Perfect. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much for that, Kevin. That's quite all right. Thanks. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye for now. And uh, next we have Maria, who's in Essendon. Good morning, Maria. Oh, good morning. Um, I'm a little bit nervous. Don't be. I'm I'm inquiring about, I've got a bay leaf tree, Mm -hmm. and it's growing in a corner. Really, we've got a very small house and garden. It should never have been planted there. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I've been trying to keep it under control, and at the moment, all the roots or suckers, I'm not sure what you call them, are just, they keep growing around the tree and the tree just keeps growing taller. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't been able to get an arborist in this area. Um, it's that big that it needs an arborist? <laughs> I'd like, well, no, it's not that big because I've been keeping it pruned. Mm-hmm. And the last time as a gardener did it and he just... Uh, uh, 
swayed a big chain thing around it and no matter what I do to it, it still comes back beautifully. <laughs> yeah, well, bay trees are something that is hard to kill, I have to admit. And you only need so many bay leaves in a garden <laughs> for most recipes that you could possibly need. So you don't actually need a lot of bay leaves, really. No, my God. So how do I keep the, how do I keep the things under control, the ones that... Um, any suggestions about that? Look, the suckers, you've just got to keep whipping them off. There's not much right. you can do about that. So just get a sharp spade and chip them out of place on a regular basis um, and just keep the head of the tree pruned back to something that is manageable. And, I mean, if you cut a bay tree twice a year, um, you can trim it into a ball or a dinosaur. I don't care. It doesn't matter what you trim it into. Uh, but you can keep them sort of reasonably within bounds. Um, and... and- the root systems are not that big. Oh, they have a fairly vi- vigorous root system, but it's n- it's not likely to push over a house or anything. But you know, it, okay. it will get a vigorous enough root system under it that it will be difficult to grow many other plants under a well-grown bay tree. So right. you know, you need to sort of leave its own space for it. Um, so it's just a matter of persistence with it. You just got to keep at it. It's one of those things like mowing the lawn. If you don't do it, it gets out of hand. Right. Uh, so a- any suggestion where I can get people to sort of keep it trim and. I'm 71, so I'm finding it hard. Yeah, I can understand that. So if you're finding it that hard to manage this tree, it might be time to consider getting rid of it. And in which case, and get one and, and keep it in yeah, a pot, and that yeah. will bonsai. And look, there's some dwarf versions out there at the moment. There's one called something silly like Lil Imp, uh, that only grows to about two meters. Uh, okay. and there's another one called Miles Choice, which is a good one for hedging because it's much bushier and more branchy. Uh, All so right. there, there are choices in bay trees. There's actually a narrow leafed one called Angustifolia, which is the Jenny Craig bay tree, uh, because it's very slender. Um, <laughs> so there's lots of different choices out there but I would warn you that bay tree if you get it cut down it will sucker like bilio so what you need to do is cut it down paint the top of the stump with with neat roundup and kill the tree otherwise you're going to end up causing even more grief by taking the tree down so it will need the stump will need to be poisoned out otherwise you'll have suckers coming up all over the garden Okay, then. Uh, but I think if you're reaching an age where it's going to be difficult for you to deal with, maybe you need to look at getting somebody in, whip it down, poison the stump, and if you still want some bay leaves for, for recipes and things, plant one of the dwarfer ones in a pot. Right, okay. And that would work quite well. Um, and then you don't have the issues of, well, I w- wouldn't want to see you climbing ladders and things. if <laughs> you know, that, that could be counterproductive. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much. Bye. Because bay trees can be a nightmare if you... Yes. You know, if you let them go. I mean, I've got a bay tree in the back of my garden. I don't care. It doesn't matter how big it's going to get because it's somewhere where it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, But I put it in about 20 years ago and it's got to be 10 metres tall now. Mm. And it's huge. Mm. It's just vast. And I go out and I pluck one bay leaf off a chicken catchatory and I think, oh, I've got my own bay leaf. Although I have to say, fresh bay leaves are not like dry ones. They're much nicer. No, very true. True. Mm. Okay. Let's go to uh, David, who's down round Camperdown. Good morning, David. Good morning, folks. Um, I'm just a bit worried about the promotion of um, glyphosate and Roundup. Well, I'm not promoting it. I'm suggesting it's your only alternative sometimes. 
I if, think there are other alternatives. Well, if you can find me an alternative oh. that will kill a bay tree stump without it suckering all over your garden, I would be most surprised, David. Well, we've got to look at all the other effects from it, though, too. Yeah, I'm but at least it's being controlled in one negative spot. Negative health effects of it. Yeah, mm. but you're controlling it within one spot. I mean, we're not talking about spraying it all over the place. Uh, we're talking about well, very concentrated... Well, it's a cumulative effort. toxin. It doesn't break down. It's still there. It's cumulative toxin. It's been proven by many professors and doctors in this field. I, I Toxicologists. Think, yeah, it's, it's the right... If you want the information, then I'll give it to you sometime. Mm. Sure. Okay. Okay. Sure. Thanks, David. It, it, I think glyphosate is, is the right tool for the right job in some circumstances. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, I mean, of course, it's a poison, and but it, it's the right tool for the right mm. job as long as it's used uh, in a sort of circumspect way. So, I, I mean, I, it always worries me when I see people just, you know, going out every fortnight and spraying it up and down their driveway oh, to control, yes. you know, oh, annual yes. weeds that could be very on. easily controlled. But then again, you know, the land care movement basically couldn't exist without Roundup, with it was sorry, glyphosate, I should say. Mm. Um, to, yeah, because how do you deal with those work? weeds? Yeah. And uh, and look, I don't use it very much either. I just use it for stump poisoning. So I think David's got. A, a very good point, but it's a it's a kind of vexed issue, really. It's mm. um, yeah, and of course it, it has been uh, the WHO has just put out um, some new work that they've done on it, and they, they right. have said that it is um, a, a carcinogen. But so um, is your motor car and bacon. So, and bacon, yes. Yeah, um, so it, it's interesting. I, yeah, look, so I, I think as long as people mm. are very circumspect about the way they use it and don't splash it around, because, mm. of course, it is a poison and that's what you use it for, to kill things, then, um, yeah. So I, I guess mm. it's a complex issue, David. It is a complex issue, and I agree with David that it shouldn't be used willy-nilly, and that's not what I'm mm. suggesting. But I will, you know, if there's a way of killing tree stumps that doesn't require a poison... And I don't see how that can work because you actually have to poison the tree stump in a sense. So if you're not using uh, glyphosate, uh, you're using blackberry and scrub killer, which is basically another poison that probably has its own impacts. Uh, I can't think of any other way of dealing with it, and particularly with trees that have a suckering root system. Mm. Because if you don't kill the stump, you're going to have suckers coming up all over your garden. Mm. And... Uh, you know, it's sometimes you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Mm. But, um, you know, all products out there need to be used with discretion. And, uh, you know, driving motor cars puts pollutants into the air. Um, going on trips overseas, you know, you're, you're creating potential issues. Mm. Uh, I always figure I'm planting far more back into the ground that, than my carbon footprint probably creates. So mm. I'm doing my best um, and, you know, living in this mm. age trying to deal with uh, whatever problems we mm. have. Yeah, I'm not really suggesting we should be using glyphosate. I think it's important willy-nilly. that we keep talking about it anyway. Mm. So it's, I think Absolutely. it's great that David rang in. Yeah, yeah, yeah and we have, to, we have to be constantly about. aware that, you know, that if we are going to use it at all, that it is the only thing for the job. We're not spraying it, as no. you said. I mean, if you're doing a stump, you're, you're basically drilling holes and putting it in. You're not spraying it. You're yeah, not spraying yeah. an area. No. Um, and, and we have to be aware of these problems, mm. you know. Yeah, I have more issue with them creating genetically modified crops that are Roundup ready so that they can spray the blasted stuff all over acreage. Yes. I mean, and those people are doing that. The little tiny bit I would use is a drop in the ocean compared to what's mm. being done by agriculture. Mm. Uh, that's where it's potentially going to cause mm. the most grief, mm. I think. But uh, there is no way we're telling any of our listeners to just go out and use glyphosate. No. We are not recommending it no. as a product. No, no. no. It's, it's just one of those things that sometimes there are no other alternatives. Mm. The only other alternative for something like that is to put a for sale sign up at the front and leave. <laughs> 
you know, if your garden's being taken over by asparagus fern or you've got, you know, a suckering bay tree going everywhere, um, I don't know what else you can suggest people do. Mm. And so it's just a matter of having to be philosophical about these things and dealing with them the best way you can. Mm. Stephen, while we've got a, a second, we should mm. also quickly mention for listeners that don't realise it's coming up, um, Tesla's oh, yes. Actually, festival. Yes, the Tesla's uh, festival is coming up on the 2nd and 3rd of uh, next month of April um, uh, up at Tesla's in, in Sylvan, uh, and it's a great event. I'll be up there emceeing for the weekend. Um, there's a whole range of suppliers. There's food and drink to be had. Um, uh, there's lectures that run throughout the two days, so we've got people talking on all sorts of different horticultural topics, uh, and it's great fun. So I would definitely recommend that on the 2nd and 3rd of April. And, of course, Mifkus is coming up, which we haven't even mentioned we this haven't mentioned at all. Uh, and that starts on the 16th of March. That's right. And runs through to, uh, from the Wednesday, which is the 16th, through to the following Sunday. Um, and, of course, it's one of our biggest horticultural events of the year. Um, and I guess not many of our listeners haven't been at some stage or another to the Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show, so they know what it's about. Um, but there's always something to see that's new and different, some interesting new plants and new products. Um, it's always great fun. And I will be there on the Wednesday doing a talk, I think sometime in mid-afternoon, uh, at the Scots uh, site. I'm going to be talking about plant propagating uh, for Scots products. Uh, okay. So that should be fun. Mm. Yep. Excellent. So, yeah, there's lots of things happening. There is, there uh, is, there is. And, Simon, very quickly, your garden next weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, for any listeners that'd like to go up, 10 till 4? 10 till 4, four. on the Sunday and the Monday of the long weekend. So yep. that's the 13th and 14th of March. And it's a free entry for Diggers Club members and $10 for anybody else. Fantastic. Look forward to and seeing you there. And, of course, you, there. you can go on to Diggers for... That's right. Of course, you can, mm. you can go on and take your friend for free as well. So if you mm. come and visit my garden and uh, bring a friend that has to pay $10 to get in to see my garden, you can then go to the Garden of St Earth and uh, your friend will get in free there. Yeah. And Excellent. you can wander around there. Still have something to eat, I assume. They still have the cafe going over there, so you've got all those sorts of things. And it's a wonderful property, the Garden of St. Earth. You can make make a day of it, go out to Lamley Nursery in Ascot near Ballarat, go to Dixonia Rare Plants in Mount Macedon. Make a weekend of it. Frogmore Gardens. Yes, there's lots to do. Absolutely. Wonderful. Okay. It's time that we went yet again, unfortunately. Um, We will, of course, be back uh, next weekend. But a big thank you to both uh, Stephen and Simon for being in the studio this morning. Also to uh, Vicky and Anne who've been handling all the phones. Uh, But as I said, we'll be back 7.30 next week. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.